This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start off reading from the Times of Israel. In the first article from the Times of Israel, Smotrich's D.C. visit still on amid uproar, but U.S. officials not planning to meet him, by Jacob Magid. Finance Minister Betzalel Smotrich's visit to Washington next week to speak at an Israel bonds conference was still scheduled to take place amid outcry over his call to wipe out the Palestinian town of Huwara, but the White House said Thursday that U.S. government officials would not be meeting with him. A day earlier, Smotrich said during a panel discussion that he thinks the village of Huwara needs to be wiped out and that the state of Israel should do it, sparking immediate outcry from opposition lawmakers along with U.S. and Palestinian officials. The comments came amid an outpouring of shock and horror in Israel and abroad after hundreds of settlers ransacked the Palestinian town of Hawara and surrounding villages Sunday night, last Sunday night, settling, uh, setting dozens of buildings and vehicles on fire in revenge for a terror attack in which Israeli brothers driving through the town were gunned down hours earlier. One Palestinian man was killed and hundreds more were injured during the rampage which Israel's top general in the West Bank referred to as a pogrom. Israel Bonds was resisting calls to rescind its invitation to Tzmotrich and his appearance at the group's annual conference taking place from March 12th to 14th was still slated to go forward. A spokesman familiar with the matter told the Times of Israel Thursday. A spokesman for Tzmotrich similarly confirmed that the minister was still planning to make the trip. Israel Bonds did issue its first public statement since Smotrich's Wednesday remarks, but it did not directly refer to the minister or his slated conference appearance. It said that Israel Bonds has always maintained a focus on one core mission, to generate financial support through the sale of Israel Bonds for the building and development of Israel's economy without regard to politics. We are a nonpartisan financial organization which sells Israel bonds issued by the State of Israel through its finance ministry as part of their long-established responsibilities. Israel's finance ministers from across the political spectrum have historically, over Israel bonds' 72-year history, attended our events. One of the organization's most unique and paramount attributes is that it remains unbiased with regard to any political party or affiliation, enabling all to show unwavering support for the well-being of Israel and its people. Through investments in Israel bonds, the group added. Meanwhile, a White House National Security Council spokesperson said in a statement Thursday that no U.S. government meetings are planned for Smotrich's trip. A handful of liberal Jewish groups have called on the Biden administration to deny Smotrich a visa to get into the country. Asked during a Thursday press briefing whether the U.S. would take that step, State Department spokesman Ned Price responded, We don't speak to individual visa records, nor as a general matter to a particular individual's eligibility for a U.S. visa. Nevertheless, we'll continue to make clear that we reject the comments from the minister just as we did yesterday, he said. We appreciate the condemnations that we've heard from our Israeli partners, Price added, a day after the State Department spokesperson had called on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other senior Israeli officials to publicly repudiate Smotrich's remarks. 
As of Thursday night, only Israel's ambassador to the U.S., Michael Herzog, had done so, telling CNN it is absolutely not Israeli policy and it's against our values to respond by wiping out civilian villages. Meanwhile, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, the United Arab Emirates, and Jordan issued statements on Thursday condemning Smotrich. Guterres's spokesman called the minister's remark provocative, inflammatory, and just unacceptable. On top of that, coming from a government official, it's irresponsible and inconsistent with any U.N. resolution, the spokesperson said, reiterating Guterres's call for all sides to refrain from incitement, inflammatory rhetoric, and all acts of provocation, particularly amid these current tensions and spiraling violence. The UAE Foreign Ministry blasted Smotrich's racist comments and affirmed its rejection of all principles and behaviors that contradict moral and human values and principles. The statement said that UAE ministry underscored the need to confront hate speech and violence and noted the importance of strengthening the values of tolerance and human coexistence in efforts to reduce escalation and instability in the region. Jordan's foreign ministry called Smotrich's remarks incendiary and said they represent a violation of international law. The remarks about Huwara, made at a conference hosted by the Marker Business Daily Wednesday, came after Smotrich was asked why he had liked a tweet by Samaria Regional Council Deputy Mayor Davidi Bencion that called to wipe out the village of Huwara today, last Sunday evening. Because I think the village of Hawara needs to be wiped out. I think the state of Israel should do it, Smotrich replied. He added, God forbid that the job should not be done by private citizens. He condemned the rampage, saying we shouldn't be dragged into anarchy in which civilians take the law into their own hands. Smotrich, who heads the far-right religious Zionism party, serves as a minister in the defense ministry in charge of the body that authorizes settlement construction and demolition, of Palestinian homes in much of the West Bank, including large parts of Hawara. As condemnations poured in, Smotrich issued a statement saying the media was trying to create a distorted interpretation of his remarks. He claimed Hawara is a hostile village where residents throw stones and shoot at Israelis every day, and that he supports a disproportionate response by the IDF against the town for every act of terrorism in order to establish deterrence. He appeared to have deleted the clarification tweet, but later in the day wrote, So there isn't any doubt. I did not mean wipe out the village of Hawara, rather act in a targeted manner against the terrorists and supporters of terrorism living there, and to exact a heavy price from them in order to restore security to the Jewish residents of the area. And next from the Times of Israel, Yair Netanyahu brands anti-government protesters terrorist after Salon standoff. Prime Minister's son says demonstrators tried to lynch his mother after protest at Tel Aviv hairdresser. Later deletes tweet, senior intelligence officer says he lost it completely by Times of Israel staff. President, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's son Yair on Thursday branded the hundreds of thousands of Israelis protesting against the government's judicial overhaul plans terrorists in a single deleted tweet, uh, in a since deleted tweet, 
posted after hundreds of demonstrators surrounded a Tel Aviv salon where his mother was getting her hair done, requiring police to extract her from the scene. These are not protesters. They are not anarchists either. They are terrorists. A violent underground movement has sprung up here with billions in funding from criminals and evil people. We're talking about domestic terrorism, Netanyahu tweeted. In a subsequent post on the Telegram messaging app, Netanyahu accused the protesters of trying to lynch his mother and said they should be arrested, tried, and thrown in jail. The line was crossed into a violent coup tonight. In the United States, this would have ended in mass raids on the homes of those involved by the FBI. Yair Netanyahu has a long history of incendiary comments on social media and frequently rails at those he says have wronged him or his family, leading to numerous libel lawsuits against him. Sarah Netanyahu claimed Thursday that the altercation outside her Tel Aviv salon the day before could have ended in her murder. Some protesters have contested her assertion that she was ever in physical danger. Videos from the scene appear to show protesters keeping their distance from the salon. After Yair Netanyahu's tweet began to attract media attention and public outcry on Friday, he wrote another post clarifying that his choice of the word terrorist was only referring to those who acted violently between the years of 2016 and 2023, ostensibly referring to the period during which protests against his father began taking place en masse. Protest organizers issued a statement to the media blasting the Prime Minister's son. This is a dangerous incitement against all citizens. This country is not willing to live in a dictatorship. On Sunday, we will file a complaint for law enforcement to investigate and prosecute this insider, the protest leader said. Also Friday, a senior, a former senior officer in Unit 8200, a top IDF intelligence unit, tore into Yair Netanyahu during an interview with Channel 12. The colonel, who can be identified only as A, due to his military status, told the network that the premier's son had lost it completely in branding the, ter the protesters as terrorists. To call me, us, anarchists and terrorists? I gave 26 years to the IDF. My friends are still serving. Does he have no shame, not even a little? You need to know when to shut your mouth. Us, terrorists? I suggest he go back to the dictionary and look up the definitions of anarchist and terrorist before using such terms to describe the salt of the earth, he said. The incident at the Tel Aviv hair salon occurred as the prime minister gave a statement to the nation in which he compared the anti-government protesters to settlers who rampaged through a Palestinian town earlier in the week. On Thursday, he tried to downplay the comparison. Wednesday's protests coincided with a meeting of the Knesset Constitution, Law, and Justice Committee, which approved for its first reading in the Knesset plenum a government-backed bill to radically restrict the High Court of Justice's ability to strike down legislation. The bill is one of several controversial measures being pushed through the Knesset by the government, which most experts say will cause fundamental harm to Israel's democratic system of governance by concentrating power with the ruling coalition and removing the court's ability to act as a check. Supporters of the plan say it will fix a situation 
in which an unelected judiciary has undermined the will of elected politicians. And next from the Times of Israel, Prince Harry to hold event with anti-Zionists who defended Hamas terrorists. Jewish group blasts Royal's decision to speak with Gabor Mate, a Holocaust survivor who has compared Islamic terror group to Jewish fighters in the Warsaw Ghetto. By Times of Israel staff, Britain's Prince Harry is scheduled to hold a book promotion event on Saturday with a trauma expert who is identified as an anti-Zionist and compared the Warsaw Ghetto fighters to Hamas terrorists. Gabor Mate will join the prince for a virtual event to discuss the royal's new memoir. Mate, 79, is a Holocaust survivor who was taken from his mother in Budapest during the genocide and hidden with an aunt until the war ended. He later immigrated to Canada where he became a renowned physician. He has long spoken of his journey from being a Zionist who believed in the need for a Jewish state after the Holocaust to becoming a harsh critic of Israel. In an op-ed written during the 2014 Gaza War, Matei likened tunnels dug by the Hamas terror group to carry out attacks against Israel to those dug by Jewish participants in the 1943 Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Palestinians used tunnels, so did my heroes, the poorly armed fighters of the Warsaw Ghetto, he said. Out of impotent defiance, they fire inept rockets, causing terror for innocent Israelis, but rarely physical harm. According to the UK-based Jewish Chronicle, Matei went on a live stream broadcast during the May 2021 Gaza War and said Hamas was nothing compared to the terrorism of the Israeli government. He later told the podcast hosted by Russell Brand that Israel is the longest ethnic cleansing uh, operation in the 20th and 21st centuries. It's still going on. Matei has also defended Pink Floyd founder Roger Waters and former labor leader Jeremy Corbyn amid long-standing accusations of anti-Semitism against them and has accused pro-Israel groups of weaponizing the term against pro-Palestinians. Responding to the news of the planned event, the Simon Wiesenthal Center's Rabbi Abraham Cooper told the Jewish Chronicle, whoever made the arrangements to have this individual appear with Prince Harry did him no favors. If Prince Harry knew this man's record and still chose him for the interview, our center would criticize the prince for such an inappropriate choice. It was unclear whether Prince Harry was aware of Matei's views on Israel, and his publicist did not immediately respond for a request for comment on the matter from the Daily Mail. And next we go over to JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. American rabbis contending with new Israeli government weigh different approaches. Some U.S. Jewish religious leaders address hardline Netanyahu coalition from the pulpit, while others are more reticent as Jerusalem's new policies force a reckoning. By Andrew Lappin. Rabbi Sharon Brous began a sermon at her Los Angeles synagogue last month with a content warning. I have to say some things that I know will upset some of you, she began. That same morning, across the country in New York City, Rabbi Angela Buchdahl was confessing something to her congregants, too. The sermon they were about to hear kept me up at night. Both women, among the most prominent and influential Jewish clergy in the United States, went on to sharply criticize Israel's new right-wing government, which includes far-right parties that have spoken out against LGBTQ Israelis, Arabs, and non-Orthodox Jews. 
In taking aim at Israel's government from the pulpit, the rabbis were veering close to what many in their field consider a third rail. You have a wonderful community and you love them and they love you until the moment you stand up and give your Israel sermon, Browse told JTA. The phenomenon even has an informal name. She said, Death by Israel sermon. Browse should know. A decade ago, she was the target of sharp criticism after she encouraged her congregants at Ikar, a non-denominational congregation, to pray for Palestinians as well as Jews during a period of conflict in Israel. The incident didn't end her pulpit, but she has come to understand why many rabbis choose what she called the path of silence when it comes to Israel. Now, she said, American Jews must depart from that path. I want you to hear me, she said in her sermon. There is a revolution that is happening, and this moment demands an awakening on both sides of the sea, an honest reckoning. All over the country, non-Orthodox rabbis are making similar calculations in response to Israel's new governing coalition, which has drawn widespread protests over its policy moves. Orthodox communities, including their rabbis, tend to be more, tend to be more politically conservative and skew to the right of non-Orthodox communities, on Israel issues. Israel's government is advancing an overhaul of this legal system that would sap the power of the judiciary and is also contending with an escalating wave of violence with the Palestinians. Some rabbis feel emboldened to speak aloud what they have long believed. Others are finding themselves reconsidering their own relationship to Israel and bringing their congregants along on their journey. A few still feel that criticizing Israel from the pulpit is misguided and even dangerous venture, one that could splinter American Jewish communities. What cuts across the spectrum is a belief that Israel has been discussed too little from the synagogue pulpit. Brous said the tendency of liberal rabbis not to talk about Israel lest they anger their more conservative congregants has resulted in a painful reality. American Jews have not developed the muscle that we now need to respond to this regime. Rabbi Emil Hirsch, meanwhile, believes today's rabbis must be vocal in fending off the influence of competing values about Zionism from various organizations that are either cool on Israel or don't like Israel or just downright anti-Zionist. Last year, angered by a letter signed by dozens of rabbinical students denouncing Israel's actions during its 2021 conflict with Hamas in Gaza, Hirsch launched an initiative based at his New York City Reform Synagogue to equip rabbis with tools to counter what he said was the growing influence of an anti-Zionist element in the next generation of Jewish clergy. The initiative, Amplify Israel, is housed at his Stephen Wise Free Synagogue, and employs another rabbi, Tracy Kaplowitz, to work full-time to galvanize leaders from across the reform movement to to support Israel. Kaplowitz jokes that her new job won't be complete until every reformed Jew is a Zionist. Hirsch knows the new coalition is complicating his task. The new government is going to make our promotion of Israel more difficult in the United States, he said, noting that the government has elements in it that are deeply problematic and even offensive to most American Jews. He and Kaplowitz said it is possible for rabbis to criticize aspects of the Israeli government 
from the pulpit while still remaining broadly supportive of the Jewish state and encouraging their congregants to be the same. They also say the need to build Zionist sentiment within the American rabbinate transcends any particular movement, including this one. Hirsch sits on the advisory board of another new pro-Israel initiative, the Zionist Rabbinic Coalition. Helmed by Stuart Weinblatt, senior rabbi at conservative congregation B'nai Tzedek in Potomac, Maryland, the group is an interdenominational network of more than 200 rabbis who advocate to strengthen the ties between American Jewry and the state of Israel. Weinblatt hews to an earlier generation's view of how rabbis should approach Israel from the pulpit. He told JTA he believes his colleagues should always be supportive of Israel in public, even if they choose to pressure the Israeli government and advocate against certain policies in private, which he says is the appropriate vehicle for voice and concerns. My position has always seen that support for Israel should be unconditional, he said. If we as rabbis are sharply critical of Israel, the result can often lead to a distancing from Israel, which ultimately may diminish the connection people feel to Judaism and the Jewish people, he added. People do not always distinguish and differentiate between opposition to a particular policy and broader criticisms of Israel, which can do lasting damage. Asked whether the Israeli government could ever conceivably take a step that would necessitate a public response from American rabbis, Weinblatt said the current debate around proposed changes to the law of return, the Israeli policy that allows anyone with at least one Jewish grandparent to claim citizenship, would be such an example, as that is a policy that would have a direct effect on diaspora Jews. Tightening who is eligible under the law of return is a goal of some elements of Israel's governing coalition, although the diaspora minister assured an audience in the United States that unlike with the proposed changes to the government's judicial system, which have earned criticism across the political spectrum, there would be an effort to build consensus and no changes would happen overnight. Still, the prospect of such a change so alarmed Rabbi Hillel Skolnick of Congregation to Ferreth Israel of Columbus, Ohio, that he traveled to Jerusalem to address the Knesset, Israel's lawmaking body. The members of my congregation and my movement have a spiritual connection with Judaism and also a political connection because we live in a democracy, so they see a Jewish democracy as an ideal that they can look to as a light unto the nations he said in a speech he delivered as a representative of the conservative Masorti movement. By even questioning the idea of the law of return, he went on, Israel takes away from both the Jewish connection and the democratic connection they have with this country. Skolnick suggested that he was aware of how to speak to his congregation. Uh, he suggested he was unsure of how to speak to his congregation about the new government and its agenda. My question to you is, what message can I go home with? He asked. This week, hundreds of American rabbis will be returning to their congregations with messages honed by a week in Israel. The Reform Movement just concluded its biennial convention, which was held there for the first time since the pandemic. Their visit coincided with major developments in the country's twin crises. The Knesset advanced the judicial reform legislation, and two Israelis were killed in a Palestinian terrorist shooting in the West Bank and a Palestinian left dead after subsequent settler riot. 
In a sign of the balancing act that American rabbis are navigating, the reform movement's leader, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, who has been among the earliest and most outspoken critics of the new Israeli government, will also be a featured speaker at Amplify Israel's conference this May, aiming to encourage Zionist sentiment among reformed Jews. At the convention, the leader of the Central Conference of American Rabbis called for reformed clergy to move away from defining Israel in stark black and white terms, an apparent reference to Jews who speak of pro-Israel and anti-Israel forces. In order to connect better with those in our community around Israel in a nuanced and meaningful way, we must be able to move beyond the pro-con dichotomy, which only serves to divide us in ways that are a distraction to the actual issues at hand, Rabbi Hara Person told the attendees. During the conference, the rabbis attended and voiced support for Israeli protests against their government. We are seeing a shift for the better, in my opinion, about how Jews are feeling comfortable with critiquing Israel's policies, Rabbi Sarah Bramer Schley told JTA last fall before the Israeli elections. Bramer Schley was a signer of the 2021 Rabbinical Students Letter who, letter who graduated from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and today is a rabbi and chaplain at Grinnell College. That kind of shift has Weinblatt worried. Sometimes rabbis are actually out of sync and out of touch with their congregations who do want to hear messages of support of Israel, he said. That may well be the case, particularly at the synagogues with aging populations, but survey data suggests that American Jews are moving to the left on Israel at the same time that Israel itself has shifted to the right. The most recent Pew Research Center survey of American Jews in 2021 found that most have a negative opinion of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Only one-third think Israel is making a sincere effort to achieve peace with the Palestinians, and 10% support the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement against Israel. Overall, though, American Jews overwhelmingly said they were emotionally attached to the Jewish state. While rabbis typically consider what they think their congregants want to hear, they aren't bound to say it. And some rabbis say this moment is a time to take a stand, even if there is blowback. Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky of Congregation Anshe Chesed, a conservative congregation on Manhattan's Upper West Side, announced in December that his congregation would no longer recite the prayer for the State of Israel, part of most congregations' Shabbat morning liturgy since 1948. He said the extremism of Israel's leadership meant the words no longer applied and replaced the prayer with the more generally worded prayer for peace in Jerusalem. I couldn't just say, God, please guide our leaders well, Kalmanovsky said, pointing specifically to the fact that extremist politicians Itamar Ben-Gavir and Betzalel Shmotrich were now government ministers who would be the beneficiaries of such prayer. The things that they're saying cannot possibly represent the Israel that I want to support. Kalmanovsky had not previously been outspoken as a critic of Israeli policy. He said he's faced some tough feedback from some in his community, including from those who believe this is a moment that demands more, not less prayer for Israel. Not an unreasonable response, he said, but a month into the liturgy change, he said he is confident he has made the right decision. 
Something really meaningful had changed in the public life of the State of Israel, he said. That deserved real recognition and a real response. Continuing to focus on preserving a Jewish connection with Israel without dealing like grown-ups with its very serious problems would render the rabbinical voice irrelevant, Kalmanovsky said. At best, we're kind of like blind love, blind loyalty, and at worst, we're totally obtuse and have nothing meaningful to say about the real world. If you're going to have a pulpit, Kalmanovsky added, you're going to have to use it once in a while. Next from JTA, ADL, AJC, join Orthodox groups in Supreme Court case on supporting religious protections in the workplace by Ron Campeas. Washington. Two leading Jewish civil rights organizations are part of a coalition of groups asking the U.S. Supreme Court to uphold protections for religious observance in the workplace in a case that has already drawn support from Orthodox Jews. The Anti-Defamation League and the American Jewish Committee each joined separate, separate amicus briefs this week in Groff versus DeJoy on behalf of an evangelical Christian postal worker whose case requesting to get Sundays off is under consideration by the court. Orthodox groups have been backing Gerald Goff since last year when he was endeavoring to get the Supreme Court to consider the case. The court took up his case in January. The pairing of both secular groups with the Orthodox in a religious freedom case is rare. They have frequently been on opposite sides on church-state separation issues, such as same-sex marriage or government funding for religious education, but the right of religious expression in the workplace has long been a unifying cause across the Jewish spectrum. The litigant in this particular case wants Sundays off, but the AJC explained in a statement that in workplaces that refuse to grant a day off for religious observance, half of the adversely affected employees take Saturday as a day of rest, among them observant Jews. Contrary to the established law, religious discrimination remains a feature of the American workplace, AJC's statement said. Groff is a Pennsylvania mailman who sought accommodations after the U.S. Postal Service started Sunday deliveries on behalf of Amazon in 2013. At first, Groff was able to work around Sunday deliveries, but as demand for the service grew, the United States Postal Service disciplined him for declining Sunday shifts. He quit and sued. Louis DeJoy, named in the case, is the Postmaster General. A 1972 amendment to the 1964 Civil Rights Act guarantees freedom from discrimination based on religion as long as employers would not face undue hardship, but Congress did not define that term. Supporters of Groff see the case as a chance to overturn a key precedent established in Transworld Airlines v. Hardison, the 1977 Supreme Court decision that ruled for the airline over a member of a Christian sect who sought Saturdays off rejecting three possible accommodations posited by a lower court as undue hardships. The possible accommodations involved allowing the employee a four-day work week, paying other employees overtime to fill his shift, or allowing the employee to leapfrog more senior employees in seeking Saturdays off. Religious groups have long argued that the court's rejection of those accommodations essentially made the 1972 amendment meaningless. Lower courts have ruled against Groff in this case, citing the 1977 Supreme Court decision. ADL said the case was a matter of fairness. 
People of faith will forever be unable to participate fully in society if they are forced to choose between their religion and earning a living, a living, ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said in a statement. Next from JTA, feds arrest Michigan man who plotted to kill Jewish elected officials in the state by Andrew Lappin. The FBI coordinated with local authorities in mid-February to arrest a heavily armed man who had threatened to kill all Jewish elected officials in Michigan on social media, according to a recently unsealed criminal case. The man appears to have been a former employee of the University of Michigan. Jack Eugene Carpenter III, a resident of Tipton, Michigan, had tweeted on February 17th that he was heading back to Michigan, now threatening to carry out the punishment of death to anyone that is Jewish in the Michigan government if they don't leave or confess, according to the FBI's affidavit. There are several prominent Jewish elected officials in the state, including Attorney General Dana Nessel, U.S. Representative Alyssa Slotkin, and a handful of state senators and representatives. In a tweet Thursday, Nessel said the FBI had confirmed she was one of Carpenter's targets and added, It is my sincere hope that the federal authorities take this offense just as seriously as my hate crimes and domestic terrorism unit takes plots to murder elected officials. Carpenter has been charged with transmitting an interstate threat for which he could receive up to five years in federal prison and is being held without bail in a federal court in Detroit, according to local papers. He was in Texas when he made the tweets, the FBI said. On a Twitter account, the FBI linked to Carpenter. He claimed to be a former employee of the University of Michigan who was fired for refusing to take experimental medication, apparently referring to the COVID-19 vaccine. The University of Michigan has more than 6,500 Jewish students, according to Hillel International. Probable cause exists that Carpenter's Twitter account made threat to cause injury and death to Jewish members of the Michigan government, FBI Special Agent Sean Nichol wrote in the February 18th affidavit. This is the latest anti-Semitic threat to emerge in the state of Michigan. In December, a man in suburban Detroit was charged with ethnic intimidation after screaming anti-Semitic profanities at a local synagogue preschool. The state has also been home to a growth in violent extremist movements, including a group recently put on trial for plotting to kidnap Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. One of the leaders of that effort was sentenced to 19 years in prison. The University of Michigan had employed Carpenter for 10 years and let him go in 2021, a spokesperson for the university told JTA. A review of the university's publicity, uh, publicly available salary disclosure Information shows Carpenter was a systems administrator in the computing department at the dean's office of the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts, the school's largest college. The university did not elaborate on Carpenter's employment or why he is no longer, was no longer with the school, citing its policy on personnel matters. Federal agents determined that Carpenter had previously been arrested on assault charges and had stolen one of his handguns from his girlfriend. His mother told authorities he was in possession of several firearms, including three handguns, a 12-gauge shotgun, and a military-style hunting rifle. The February 17th tweet by Carpenter directly threatening to kill Jewish elected officials, as quoted by the FBI, was not visible on the public Twitter account linked to him as of March 1st. But a stated intent to return to Michigan, that was also quoted by the FBI, was visible, as were many other violent threats, and anti-Semitic rants, including threatening allusions 
to the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that the COVID-19 vaccine was developed by Jews as a means of controlling the world. Any Jewish person holding a public office on my land after that time is subject to immediate punishment for their participation in an unlawful war of aggression using a biological weapon against me, he wrote. Carpenter also threatened any law enforcement personnel who planned to interfere with, hit, with deadly force. In multiple paranoid manifestos posted to his Twitter, Carpenter also declared himself the king of Israel and declared that he was forming a new state on his property, one the FBI said he had declared New Israel. He also tweeted that should he be arrested, he planned to get the lawyer removed due to conflict of interest because they are Jewish. Carpenter mentioned some public figures by name in his manifestos, including Whitmer, Anthony Fauci, Chris Cuomo, and multiple University of Michigan personnel, all of whom he planned to target for crimes against humanity. The only Jewish figure he mentions is Pfizer CEO Albert Bula. Carpenter also made references to several prominent right-wing conspiracy theories, including the QAnon movement, and the belief that President Joe Biden was not lawfully elected. In one tweet, Carpenter threatened to have Twitter CEO Elon Musk publicly hanged. Carpenter further said he would grant a brief reprieve to any Zionist Christian or Zionist Jew who wished to return to the country to which you actually owe allegiance. And next from JTA, Elon Ganellis, American killed in West Bank attack, remembered for his wit and friendship by Jackie Hoshnenberg and Ben Sales. Playing saxophone in the sukkah. Discussing Judaism over coffee. Hanging out with his brothers and friends in the basement on Shabbat. These are a few of the memories that have emerged from Alain Ganellis, 20, of Alain Ganellis, 26, the recent college graduate raised in Connecticut who was killed Monday when a gunman shot at him on a road near the Palestinian West Bank city of Jericho. Those who knew Ganellis remembered him as quiet and loyal, funny and down-to-earth. He was the kind of guy you could call and you'd be sure he'd pick up and have a few minutes to talk if you needed something. Rabbi Yehuda Drizin of Chabad at Columbia University, who knew Ganellis as an undergraduate there. For everyone who knew him, this is a kick in the gut. This really hurts. Ganellis grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, where his family attended the local Orthodox Young Israel Synagogue a block away from their home. As a teenager, Ganellis read Torah for the community. The synagogue has launched a fundraiser for his family and is bringing in grief counselors to help the community. Elan was a member of our community when he lived in Connecticut, Shimshon Nedel, a rabbi in the Jerusalem neighborhood of Harnoff, wrote on Facebook, uh, using a traditional Jewish acronym, denoting when someone is murdered. I remember him as a sweet boy with a great sense of humor. He played the saxophone and we would jam together in the shul sukkah during Hallel on Hanukkah and musical Havdalahs, heartbreaking. Ganellis attended modern Orthodox schools and the local Camp Gan Israel and was involved with NCSY, the National Council of Synagogue Youth, and the Orthodox, uh, which is the Orthodox Youth Group. At Hebrew High School of New England, he was an honor student and volunteered with the local Jewish Family Services, according to an article published about him in 2014. At the time, he said he was deferring enrollment at the University of Michigan 
and enlistment in the U.S. military to spend a year in Israel. You see so many different people, he said, according to the 2014 article in Weha.com, a local online publication. You can't judge them. Everyone has their own story, and you need to be more accepting of all. That year in Israel turned into more than two as he enlisted as a lone soldier in the Israel Defense Forces and lived on a religious kibbutz in northern Israel with his fellow recruits from abroad. A compilation video of photos from the group's time together on Gamelis' YouTube channel is filled with pictures of him smiling as the group toured Israel. According to his LinkedIn page, Gamelis also worked for several months in the kibbutz dairy farm. In the IDF, according to his LinkedIn, Gamelis rose to the rank of sergeant and worked as a computer programmer on financial monitoring systems. He did work for the Knesset Finance Committee and Israeli Ministry of Finance. Penina Bede, who was in the class above Ganellis at their high school and spent many Shabbat afternoons with him and his brothers, said Ganellis stood out for his sense of humor. Everything he did and said came from a place of kindness and sweetness, but he had the most ridiculous sense of humor, Bede said. It was so uniquely Elan. He would just say things that if anybody else said them would be like, why would you say that? But his delivery was so perfect. Like Ganellis, Two, uh, Bede, too, served in the Army, and they compared notes and experiences. Years after Bede finished her service and returned home to Connecticut, she tutored Ganellis' younger brother in Hebrew and found herself back in the basement on Shabbat, hanging out with the family like she had back in high school. It was good to see him that night, she recalled. Ganellis returned to the United States in 2018 to attend Columbia University, where, according to a statement from the campus Hillel, he threw himself into student activities. He was involved in Tamid, a student group focused on Israeli business, as well as Jewish learning programs. The statement said we will miss his wry humor and thoughtful manner of discussing challenging or controversial topics. He spent a summer in Beijing and worked as a geospatial analyst at a campus center. Canellis graduated in 2022 with a degree in sustainable development and neuroscience, according to his LinkedIn account. He had traveled to Israel this week to attend a wedding, according to a statement from the Jewish Federation of West Hartford. He was a very good friend and a loyal friend, Drizzen said, describing Ganellis as a nice person, an easy person. After every interaction with him, you walked away feeling happy. Ganellis is survived by his parents, Andrew and Carolyn, both physicians in West Hartford, and two younger brothers, Simon and Gabriel. The rabbi of young Israel of West Hartford traveled to join the family in Israel, where Ganellis will be buried and accompany them home to Connecticut later this week to sit Shiva. And next from JTA, Cleveland rabbi sentenced to prison for soliciting underage sex had a prominent conservative rabbi as his character witness by Andrew Lappin. A Cleveland-area rabbi was sentenced to six months in prison on Monday for soliciting underage sex, capping a sad and shocking saga for the area's Jewish community. Among those who testified on Stephen Weiss's behalf in a bid for leniency was a prominent rabbi in the conservative movement. Weiss, formerly senior rabbi at B'nai Jeshurun, congregation in Pepper Pike, was sentenced for the crimes of attempted unlawful sexual conduct with a minor and possessing criminal tools. 
He had been arrested and charged after a sting operation last April and pleaded guilty to the two felony charges in January. Weiss, 61, will be required to register as a sex offender for 25 years. Appearing as a character witness for Weiss at his sentencing hearing was Rabbi William Lebeau, a former dean of the rabbinical school and former vice chancellor at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Lebeau currently serves as a senior consultant for rabbinic and institutional leadership with the Rabbinical Assembly, the professional association for conservative rabbis. I first met Rabbi Weiss when he was a rabbinical student, and I maintain a close relationship with him to this day. I've come from New York City this morning because I wanted to share with you in court my experiences with Rabbi Weiss over the more than three decades that I've known him, LeBeau said, as he opened a three-minute statement on Weiss's behalf, according to a recording of the hearing. And the rest of the statement, he described the Rabbi Weiss that I know as beloved by his classmates and respected by his teachers, especially admired for his qualities of kindness and sensitivity, his inspirational teaching of children and adults, and his support for congregants experiencing trouble. LeBeau noted that Weiss felt remorse and had sought professional help in the wake of his arrest. Significantly, over more than 30 years as a rabbi, there was nothing close to a grievance about his rabbinic service or his personal conduct, LeBeau said. There was nothing that would have predicted this aberrant moment in his life. I respectfully ask you, Your Honor, to consider the case of Rabbi Weiss in the context of the life of devotion to his family and to his community that he lived prior to this tragic event. Weiss had already pleaded guilty to the crimes. LeBeau and Weiss's daughter appeared as character witnesses as part of his attorney's effort to secure a more lenient sentence. Weiss's legal team had argued that his 2022 solicitation of an undercover police officer posing as an underage boy was an aberration in Weiss's three decades of rabbinical activities. His lawyer also cited a 2018 brain injury as a relevant factor in his behavior. Some, of the conserva- uh, com- some in the community questioned the decision of LeBeau, a widely admired mentor in the conservative movement, to testify on Weiss's behalf. I have a great deal of respect for Rabbi LeBeau. He's a very important person in the movement, Rabbi Noah Bickert, an endowed professor of Jewish studies at John Carroll University in Cleveland, told JTA. Bickert had been a student at JTS when LeBeau was its dean. But, Bickert said, choosing to support and defend Rabbi Weiss here, as opposed to the community that was victimized or potentially victimized, was the wrong decision to make. In an email to JTA, LeBeau said, I chose to make a personal statement referring to the Stephen Weiss I have known for 35 years and the qualities that defined him, as I said in the courtroom prior to this tragic event. The rabbinical assembly, with which LeBeau is currently associated, had harshly condemned Weiss's alleged behavior upon his initial arrest in April 2022 and suspended his membership, making him ineligible to apply for jobs or participate in other activities. These deeply disturbing accusations betray the sacred trust our communities put in their clergy and must be fully and immediately investigated and dealt with appropriately, 
The group said in a joint statement with the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism at the time. The Rabbinical Assembly began publicizing a list of suspended and expelled rabbis in 2021 amid a widespread reckoning over whether Jewish organizations had inappropriately obscured misconduct by rabbis and other leaders. Rabbi LeBeau's testimony was not on behalf of the Rabbinical Assembly. A Rabbinical Assembly spokesperson said in a statement this week, which noted that the group is now in the process of expelling Weiss permanently. And his testimony did not seek to justify nor excuse the behavior for which Stephen Weiss was convicted. LeBeau had previously defended a different rabbi accused of inappropriate behavior towards children. In 2014, according to the foreword, he had supported a rabbi in Savannah, Georgia, who had given a lesson to a class of nine-year-olds about sex trafficking filled with explicit language, alarming many parents. Back then, Lubo told the foreword, the accused rabbi was one of the kindest, most sensitive, caring people among all the students I met, and expressed particular concern about the damage the incident could do to the rabbi's reputation, saying this is a man's life and a man's reputation. No crime was ever alleged to have taken place with the rabbi in Savannah. Bickert said he was unfamiliar with the Savannah case, but had a theory about why LeBeau spoke on behalf of rabbis in both cases. I think Rabbi LeBeau honestly just wants to defend rabbis, he said. My sense is that Rabbi LeBeau is probably the go-to person to be a character witness for anybody. Still, Bickert said he found the choice to testify on Weiss's behalf meaningful. As somebody who's a parent of a boy precisely the same age as the fictitious victim in this case, it's hard for me to see an important rabbinic mentor seemingly take more seriously the concerns of a convicted sex offender than of the community, Bickert said. Prosecutors for Ohio's Task Force on Internet Crimes Against Children disputed the arguments of LeBeau and Weiss's attorney that Weiss's conduct was a brief irregularity, saying that he had shown evidence of premeditated action. Weiss had previously sent explicit messages to an undercover officer posing as an underage boy in 2020 and waited for hours in order to separate his target from his parents in 2022 when he was arrested. B'nai Jeshuron, where Weiss has served since 2001, suspended the rabbi immediately upon his arrest in 2022, and he resigned days later. The congregation had determined in its own investigation that Weiss had not engaged in any illegal or illicit activity at the congregation itself. After Weiss's sentencing was announced, the congregation's president and senior rabbi emailed congregants to offer counseling services. And next from JTA, in Mel Brooks' History of the World Part 2, Jewish Jokes Reign from BCE to the Beatles by Jackie Hodgdenberg. In a scene that will soon stream on Hulu, a group of early Christian bishops gathers to set a promotion strategy for their newish religion to make the Bible an international blockbuster, as one puts it. But the plot is unclear. Who are the bad guys in this story, asks one. He and his fellow clerics consider two options, the Jews and the Romans. Let's make them the Jews for sure, says a bishop. They run everything, says another. And thus, the First Council of Nicaea, a gathering in 325 CE that is considered the birth of Christian anti-Semitism, 
gets the Mel Brooks treatment in History of the World Part 2, the long-awaited sequel to the classic Mel Brooks film that revolves around Jewish history and skewers it. The new four-part series even has a Jewish premiere date, March 6th, the eve of merrymaking, the holiday of Purim. As with the 1981 original, written, directed, and produced by Brooks, who also stars, the new series is littered with Jewish subject matter, even in the sketches that aren't about Jews. And although comedian, uh, comedy mores have changed in the past four decades, the series aims to retain Brooks's signature combination of sharp parody, vaudevillian vulgarity, and borscht belt antics. We really tried to embrace what we love about Brooks's work and apply that to the work that we were doing. Whether that was the themes of funny character names or breaking the fourth wall, or anachronisms of certain kinds of playful blocking, director Alice Mathias told JTA. The kind of comedy work that I was doing up until this point was a touch more restrained and not quite as slapstick in places, so it was really fun to get a little sillier. And the creators aren't concerned about a show with repeated send-ups of Jewish history at a, rising a time of rising anti-Semitism. Saying the Jews are the bad guys is, the on is only funny because you're making fun of the people saying it, said showrunner David Stassen. You're punching up. You're making fun of the bishops in power. That was the intent. Part of the series' Jewishness is thanks to Nick Kroll, the Jewish comedian who had been interested in creating History of the World Part II for a very long time and nudged Brooks to agree, Stassen told JTA, using the Yiddish word for pester. Kroll is the co-creator of the critically acclaimed cartoon Big Mouth, which was largely based on his experience attending the Solomon Schechter School of Westchester. He also grew up in a conservative, kosher-keeping household. Kroll joins Brooks, 96, Wanda Sykes, Ike Barinholtz, and David Stassen as a writer and executive producer with Matthias of Netflix's absurdist sketch series I Think You Should Leave as director. It wasn't a matter of, is this the right time for this? Stassen told JTA. It was just like, how do we honor Mel? How do we do a show that's different than current sketch shows that is in Mel's tone? History of the World Part 1 spoofs the epic, epic films of the mid-20th century with sketches including a musical number take on the Spanish Inquisition, an alternate history of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, and cavemen discovering music. The new series puts a 21st century spin on that idea, reminiscent of Comedy Central's Drunk History and featuring many of the same cast members, including Joe Lo Truglio, who plays one of the bishops at Nicaea, with hints of the Netflix series I Think You Should Leave. Audiences will seek comedic send-ups of historical events, including Black Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm's historic run for president, Marco Polo's arrival at the Palace of Kublai Khan in China, the Russian Revolution and the signing of the Oslo Accords, the 1993 Israeli-Palestinian Peace Agreement. Just a few of the Jewish jokes. Jason Alexander makes an appearance as a notary slash moil who brings the wrong bag full of his ritual tools to the official signing of the Confederate Army's surrender at the end of the Civil War. Useless. Useless and somebody, unless somebody wants to take a little off the top, Alexander's character says, gesturing to his tools. The story of Jesus gets parodied via multiple genres and is arguably one of the most Jewish recurring sketches of the whole series. 
in a Curb Your Enthusiasm-inspired sketch in the second episode, Judas, played by Kroll, and Luke, by J.B. Smoove, realize that Jesus, played by J. Ellis, has abandoned keeping kosher when they catch him publicly eating a bacon cheeseburger. A subsequent sketch spoofs the documentary The Beatles Get Back, in which fans of the Apostles eat matzah on sticks outside of the Apples and Honey recording studio. And a recurring sketch focusing on the Russian Revolution and parodying, parodying parts of Fiddler on the Roof features a literal mud pie salesman named Schmuck Mudman who lives in an Eastern European shtetl. Mudman sells his wares via Patsmatis, a Yiddish play on the food delivery app Postmatis. After moving from the village to Moscow, Mudman, played by Kroll, is surprised to find a meeting of the Mensheviks, the opposition to the communist Bolshevik party, in his apartment. Your misery looks familiar to me. Are we from the same shtetl? Mudman asks one of the Mensheviks in a depressing round of early 20th century Jewish geography. No, I get this all the time, the man responds, but I'm a miserable Jew, uh, city Jew. And in time for the Jewish holiday of Purim, a graphic novel of the Purim story from a Batman comics creator by Julian Volage. In 1996, Jordan Gorfinkel launched two series of comics that get at the two sides to his personality and career. One was Birds of Prey, which had, uh, has since been the basis for several television and film adaptations that he created while overseeing the Batman franchise as an editor at DC Comics. The other that he launched in 1996 was Jewish Cartoon, an ongoing series of comics that poke fun and celebrate aspects of Jewish life and religious observance. To date, he has followed a cast of characters in this series for over 1,000 cartoons. Gorfinkel's newest project combines those two passions into a graphic novel version of the Purim story, usually read in what's called the Megillah Scroll. Gorfinkel said the Koran Tanakh graphic novel Esther, which is illustrated by Yael Nathan, is a Batman-style adaptation. It's not his first collaboration with the Jewish publisher. Three years ago, he published a graphic novel Haggadah with the Israeli artist Eretz Tzedak. He and Nathan spoke to JTA about their latest creation and what's next in the Jewish graphic novel world. What does this book provide beyond the normal Megillah story? Gorfinkel, the Corin Esther graphic novel, is 100% kosher to bring to your Megillah reading because alongside the sequential art pages is the full, unabridged Hebrew text. The mitzvah is to listen to the Megillah in Hebrew, and the tradition is to read it in the language you understand. That's why this book presents the English translation in the captions and the word balloons embedded in the fabulous art by Israeli-illustrated Yael Nathan, in a stunning package designed by Tsipora Ginsberg. Why a graphic novel? From a visual perspective, this story has everything. Emotions, action, intrigue, great characters, battles, and redemption. It really allowed me to flex my storytelling muscles and try to convey complex scenes and ideas in a limited space. Gorfinkel. Esther Hadassah is the OG Wonder Woman ripped away from her family, her land, and her people to serve in a foreign court, keeping a secret identity until the moment comes to step up and be a savior. Megillah Esther is tailor-made for a graphic novel. Is this book just for kids? Who do you want to reach? Gorfinkel, I want to reach everyone. 
With Esther and the Passover Haggadah graphic novel that preceded it, readers can return to the material at every age and gain new and deeper insights out of the experience. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you for listening.